If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, Is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. It's good to see you. We are glad that you're here today. And if it's your first time here, welcome. We are glad that you've chosen to be with us. It's something that we don't take lightly that you've chosen to worship Jesus with us today. Um, if it's your first time here, we're going through um, the book of Acts. We normally just sort of teach through books of the Bible here. And today um, is going to be our last sermon in this series as we sort of pause and um, look to what's ahead. And here's just a quick preview. Um, next weekend with Thanksgiving and everything approaching, I've been in the game long enough to know that there is joy, there is happiness, there is beautiful things that take place during the holidays, and there is also um, the other side of that as well when it comes to family. And so next week, the sermon is entitled, How to Have a Meal with People You Don't Like. And so Jesus finds us where we're at, amen? But um, in all seriousness, the title's a little clickbaity, but in all reality, um, we just want to equip you with God's Word, prepare you for the holiday season, and then the following Sunday, we actually start Advent. And so um, we're here, man. This is great. If, if you haven't grown up in church, what Advent is, is that time in the church calendar where we actually prepare our heart and mind that leads us up to Easter. And so traditionally in the church, you prepare and lead up with Advent, and then the feast of Christmas is the beautiful time. So those are the things that we have coming up. And so this Sunday, um, as we are in this section, new chapter, Acts chapter 6, I really want to start here. What we've been looking at um, in this series and in this section is really some things that have been coming against the church. Now, here's what I mean by this. The church has been multiplying. It has been increasing. We've seen Pentecost. We've seen miracles take place. And the church is just exploding numerically. But in this section, really starting in Acts chapter 4, what Luke, um, the writer of this book, is doing is he's showing us a, a few key things that have been coming against the church in order to hinder its growth. And so under this title, you could really look at it as the three main dangers to the church. Um, the first one is this, persecution. 
We've been seeing that take place. Peter and the apostles were beaten for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And they told them not um, to stop with the miracles because nobody was really upset or mad about that. They were mad that they were saying that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has risen from the grave. But what these guys did is they actually praised God and were thankful that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. The reason why persecution is a danger to the church is because it disheartens people and it makes them want to give up. That's why we see the exhortations in the New Testament of though you're suffering for a little while, hold on and hold fast to the faith and keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. Persecution is absolutely a danger to the church, but that's outside the church. The second danger that we saw was hypocrisy, which is inside the church. That took place in Acts chapter 5, where we saw Ananias and Sapphira lie about donating this money because they wanted to get this title and they wanted recognition. And one of the things that we see is the early church leaders really handled this situation beautifully because we said this, the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not outside the walls of the church. It's actually inside. That anything that happens outside actually unifies the church inside. But if division or hypocrisy or murmuring or any of those things take place inside, it's like gangrene. It can rot the church from the inside out. So then what's the third thing? If the two are persecution and hypocrisy, what's the third thing? Well, I'm going to do a flyover here because what Luke has done up to this point is every once in a while in the passage, he'll drop clues to us. So in Acts chapter 1, he says that there's 120 disciples. A majority of them are in the upper room there on the day of Pentecost. Must have been a pretty big upper room, right? Reinforced flooring or something. But there's about 120 at this point who are faithfully following Jesus. And then Pentecost happens. God pours out his spirit in a miraculous way. And then Luke says that on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, there's about 3,000 people one day, one sermon that are baptized and added to the church, uh, to the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, if there's ever any like moment that I could be at to witness in the scriptures, um, one of them would be on resurrection morning whenever the soldiers go to the tomb. That would be cool, right? Because they're like, we're going to go check the tomb, make sure it's all reinforced. What? Right? Because dude ain't there, okay? I would love to have seen that. And then I would absolutely love to have seen the day of Pentecost when the Spirit moves in just a miraculous way. But as Luke continues the right, we see again in Acts chapter 4, he says that there's about 5,000 people at this point, and that is just the men. The, uh, the women and children aren't included in that number until later on. So now we have about 5,000 people. And according to Church Growth Magazine, Wah, wah, wah. Okay, that is um, officially a megachurch. Okay, so they've gone from 120 to a megachurch in Acts chapter 4. And then in Acts 5, Luke uh, gives us this in verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Look at these words. More, added, multitudes, right? So sometimes there's people who are like, um, you know, man, churches trying to count 
trying to count how many people, man. We don't count, man. We just love the Lord. Well, you're wrong. Love you, okay? But um, the Bible actually counts, and there's actually an entire book of the Bible called Numbers, okay, right? But, but why? Because every number has a name, and every name matters to God. And so we see that the church is exploding and it's growing. And then the very first verse, you read it right there in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So um, most scholars believe that up to this point in Acts chapter 6, that the church numerically is probably somewhere around 18 to 20,000 people. That's why it's starting to cause a problem with the political leaders. That's why people can't ignore it. Just to give you a screenshot of this, um, Popper Bluff City Limits is a little bit over 17 grand, okay? So the New Testament church has gone from about 120 followers to literally the size of the city limits of Popper Bluff in a short matter of time. But what we are also seeing is another hint that was given in the rest of the verse in verse 1. Did you catch it? Um, it says this in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Did you catch it? As they were growing, increasing, rapid growth, and we got a message in the complaint box out in the lobby, right? Um, we see that as all of this growth is taking place, a conflict happens. And a conflict happens between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. These are two um, ethnically, socioeconomic, different people. And the issue was, is that some people were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, I would imagine so. That if you have somewhere around 17,000 people, and at this point we see the church is distributing proceeds and funds to anybody that has need, I bet those lines were probably a little long at some point, and there was some confusion that arose. Um, maybe this illustration will help. Uh, this is a picture um, of the growth chart over at Granny and them's house. And it's got all of the grandkids on it. I've showed you this before. It's got them here and then the dates and they're growing and they're this tall. And when we read those verses in Acts, you can sort of see it like this. You can go, oh, look, Andy Grace was this tall on this day, and there's Roman, and oh, no, Andy Grace and Roman, they're neck and neck. That's awesome. And you see this from your perspective and from the outside. But do you know what I see when I see that? New pants. <laughs> new shoes. Food. New mattresses. Y'all know how much a mattress is, man? Good Lord, right? I see laundry. I see, I see um, a fourth bedroom and goodness gracious, three bedroom to four bedrooms. They want a whole, you know, good. I mean, I see, um, see, from your perspective, you see the growth. And from my perspective, I see the complexity that comes with the growth. And, and listen, this is a universal truth. 
Um, if you're a business owner in here, um, you remember when you started your business and you had an opening day and the chamber came out and they cut the ribbon and that was awesome. And then God actually answered your prayers and your business began to grow, right? And you were like, oh my goodness gracious, now what? Now you got to hire staff and all of this type of stuff. Um, listen, this is the big idea today that I see in the passage. As a church family grows, so does the complexity, and complexity is the enemy of growth. It's, it's like a double-edged sword. Um, the church is growing numerically. Beautiful things are happening. But with the growth now comes complexity because we have the Hellenists and then we have the Hebrews and then there's the widows and they didn't get the daily distribution. Well, whose job is that? Well, that's Bob's. Well, where's Bob? Well, Bob's filling in for Pete. Well, did Pete get trained? Did Bob tell him before he left? No, because he thought Steve was going to do it. Well, where's Steve? Steve quit. Steve quit. What? Like there's all kinds of confusion that's taking place. And in a family and in a business, and especially in the church of Jesus Christ, as growth happens, naturally complexity follows. So you have to steward the growth because complexity is an enemy of growth. So listen, here's what I want to do today. I'm going to look at these verses um, just a little bit. I'm going to be as applicable as I can because I read pages and pages and pages, and there's a number of ways that you can go with the passage. Guys go real theological, and they're like, this is deacons, and this, that, and the other. But listen, I want to see what God has for Westside. What's the word for us as a church? Because I believe that this is a word for us in season. I believe that God is doing amazing things in and through this church, guys. Our last baptism service, we baptized 10 people. And the baptism service before that, we baptized 12. Yes, amen. We can give it up for that. But listen, as growth happens, so does complexity. And complexity is the enemy of growth. So what do we see when we look at these verses? Well, the first thing that I see is this. As a church family grows, health should precede growth. As a church family grows, health should come before the growth. Now, you could crack open your Bible and start reading in Acts chapter 6. And you could go, oh, wow, look at all of that. And you could be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ in 2021. And you could go, see, man, look at that. As they were increasing in number. And then verse 7, and they continued to increase. And the church should grow. And we should do all of that. The problem is, is that you're dropping in midway through the story. There's been some things that have happened up to this point and up to this major moment of growth. And one of the things is, well, how about this? Acts chapter 4. But Peter and John replied, What is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. These guys were on trial for their life. And they told them, you have got to stop preaching Jesus. And if you don't stop, we'll beat it out of you. And if we can't beat it out of you, we'll kill you. And they said, hey, listen, you can be the judge of that, but we have to talk about and spread the message of what we have experienced because, hey, listen, this is a good spot for an amen. You're in the sermon now. You ready for this? Um, because 
the grave is empty. He's not in there, man. And that news can change the world, but it doesn't just stop there. Again, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. I mean, constantly we see this note struck through the book of Acts. And what is this? This, this is radical obedience. This is unadulterated, uncompromised, deep conviction in the heart of the disciples. So what does that mean? Well, here's the sentence. Long before there was radical growth from Jesus in the early church, there was radical obedience to Jesus in the early church. And health always comes before growth. It's just like when you look at that growth chart and you see, and maybe you have one of those there at your house, or maybe your kids are grown and now you walk by that and you sort of shed a tear and you're like, oh, they used to be that small. But, but, but listen, what did you do to get your kids to grow? Did you look at them and yell at them and go, you better grow. You better be this tall next year, right? Or did you form a committee and then hire a consultant to come in and talk to your family how to really um, uh, spread this thing and go public so your kids can grow and then it'll be... No. You fed them. You clothed them. You provided a nurturing environment for them. So it is true of the church of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, we say this all the time at Westside. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sustains us all the way through our life. It is not something that we hear one day and understand with our heart and our mind, and then we move on to the deep things of God. I remember that one day when I raised my hand and said that prayer that the preacher prayed, and then a few months later I signed up for the deep Bible study class after that. No, 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 no. That same gospel that saved you, that came into your life and said that you were created with a purpose and on purpose and the creator of the cosmos knows your name and every hair on your head and has lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserved and three days later rose again and now offers you eternal life and your sins are forgiven and your past doesn't define you but your past might explain you but now in Jesus you have a whole new future and a whole new life. I don't know about you, but that's good news, man. That is good news. And that's something that we tell ourselves every single day. We don't move beyond that. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sustains us. And that is the health that stays at the core of that. And I got to tell you, in the beginning when Westside was small, I really thought that the main thing and the main thing was to get numerical growth. And I'll be honest with you, that ship has sailed and come and gone because now what I see is, man, do these people have a relationship with Jesus? Are they walking with Jesus? Do they know God's word? Are they telling other people? How's their marriage? How's their parenting? Listen, here's the sentence. It's not about the quantity of disciples here at Westside. It's about the quality of discipleship. That's what we're after. Because if you have health, growth naturally comes after that. The second thing that I see is this. As a church family grows, 
so do the opportunities for failure. I mean, look at the very first verse. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected of the daily distribution. So you got to understand something. When they dropped the clue about the widows, that's a big deal. Because one of the marks of the early church and the church today is to take care of those who are marginalized. And back then, if you didn't have a husband to provide for the family, you were, I mean, it was just a matter of time before you were going to be homeless, before you were going to starve to death, all of those things. And it was the church's job to take care of the widows and orphans and those in need, to feed hungry people, to clothe people who needed clothes, to provide for the basic human necessities. And a complaint arose. So do you know what that tells me? Um, the word complaint actually means to be overlooked. Oof. Mm, that hits different, doesn't it? Instead of just a complaint, it was a group of people were being overlooked. They needed care. And they fell through the cracks. And the reason why this was such a big deal, because um, you know that it probably went up the chain of command. So like with a group of people, it was like sort of stirring a little bit, and it was stirring some more. And then maybe I imagine one Sunday, like Peter or James went up to the coffee bar at church, and they were like, hey guys, how's it going? And they were getting a cup of coffee, and these people were kind of talking, and they were murmuring, and then they were like, hey, Peter, do you know that such and such? And then it was like, oh my goodness, we had no idea, because with growth, comes complexity. And complexity is the enemy of growth. But listen, when a church is doing too many things, it will always overlook the main thing, which is what? Loving people through the proclamation and demonstration of God's Word. That's the core. That's the bullseye. That is what matters. It's not loving people and then the proclamation of the word. And it's not loving people and then living this authentic life. We care and love for people through the proclamation and demonstration of God's word. In the military, they actually have a phrase for what's taking place in the early church. It's called mission drift. So when a group of specialists and soldiers get sent out for a mission, one of the things that the leader in charge has to be on the lookout for is mission drift. Because whenever you go into the field of battle, there's all kinds of things that are taking place. Think about the movie Saving Private Ryan. It was their goal to get that young man off the battlefield. But what else did they um, come, in, come up against in the battle? A ton of stuff. And so what you have to have is your priorities in order. And that's why the disciples said that very phrase. Listen, we've got to get some people in charge of this, and we've got to do this. But at the end of the day, there was a failure. And do you know what? I find so much comfort in these verses. You know why? Peter and James and John are the pastors of this church. I mean, Peter at this point, his shadow is healing people. I mean, they could be like, um, be healed, and this guy will just walk up and, or uh, walk, get up and start walking. Or they could be like, you're blind. 
for a really long time, right? And I've prayed for that gift, and God is not. No, um, I mean, there's incredible stuff happening. And if you could ever think, man, is there a perfect church? Oh, it's got to be. Like, I hear this all the time. And most of the time, it's from either young people or guys who study books but don't live life with people. And they're like, oh, man, we got to get back to Acts, man. And we got to be like the early church. We don't have to worry about budgets or anything like that. We need to get back to the book of Acts, man. Oh, yeah, like when God killed people during the offering. When we go back to that, right? You see, listen, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Do you know why? Because the only people that are allowed into a church are imperfect people. That's it. Church is a group of sinners in close proximity to one another. So these things are bound to happen. And when you look through the New Testament, who's Paul writing to? When he says, hey, stop gossiping about one another. And Paul said their names. In, in Philippians, he's like, hey, um, Lydia and Syntyche, you guys stop gossiping, right? So right now, to be biblical, I've got a list of names. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? But those letters are to Christians and New Testament churches, which tells me this. I think sometimes when we come to be a part of something and to be a part of a church, um, I think our expectations sometimes are a little off and they're not in reality. But what do you do? What do you do when your expectations are right and there is really a failure on behalf of the leadership and the church to love people and to care for people? I mean, I bet many of you in the room have experienced that. I've talked to many, many people who've loved Jesus, gone to church. And somewhere along the way, they got devastated in church hurt. One of the things that I see in this passage is this, that this moment of failure isn't defining for the early church. It's refining. It doesn't define them. It's not like, oh, we failed and some people got neglected and now these group of Hellenists and these group of Hebrews, they're going to go down the road and they're going to start second Hebrew Hellenist such and such, right? Because we can't believe that we were neglected, right? No. They get together through the power of the Spirit and they say, how can we make this wrong right? Um, can I tell you something? And, and by the way, if it's your first time here, we're so glad that you're here uh, but this part of the sermon is going to be a little bit of a family discussion. So maybe you came on the perfect day. This is awesome. But if you call Westside your home church, um, this is for us in the room. Along the way, we have failed in, in a number of ways. I don't believe that they've ever been defining failures. I believe that they can be refining failures. But I need to tell you something that happened this week. On Monday, when I come in, Monday, I'm, I'm normally the most drained out of any day of the week. Imagine that, right? And so when I come in, the first thing that I do for the first couple of hours is I thrust myself back into the text that's coming up for Sunday because God's Word fills me up. I love studying God's Word. So the very first thing that I do in order to start my week is I get a blank sheet of paper, I open up the Bible, and I'm outlining the text, and I'm studying God's Word. And so... Monday, I'm reading Acts 6, 1 through 7, and I'm like, man, what a word for us at Westside. This is incredible. And then I get an email in my inbox, and I want to share this with you, and I have permission from the board to do that. The title of it was, A Mother of an Invisible. Hello, 
I finally talked my son into going to church with me the other day. The church that we've been a part of doesn't have many young people. So we wanted to come and we wanted to try your church. The song service was so beautiful. And the message was very, very clearly given by God to speak to my family's issues. But he couldn't focus on the message because only one person spoke to us. And they only spoke to me and not my son. And when we got back in the car, he said and felt, I'm invisible. Nobody cares if I go to church. It stings. It should. Now, I need to tell you something. The goal here is not to beat us up, but to build us up. The goal is not to produce shame or guilt, because those are poor motivators. One thing you do need to know is that an email went back and in contact with this family. Um, I've called a board meeting. We've discussed this. We shared this in staff. We've contacted ministry leaders and done all of those things that we can do in our power. And let me tell you something. I firmly believe that this is not the heart of our church. I don't believe that's Westside. But I believe it's a part of our church. And it is something that we do by God's grace have to look at it for what it is. Just like they're doing in Acts 6. And go, God, where are we falling short? And help us by the power of your spirit to bridge this gap. Here's what I'm saying, Westside. Um, I firmly believe that this is not a defining moment for us. I believe it's a refining moment for us. But it must be received with humility. It must be received with humility. And so as I met with our board, we came together with a number of things that we felt would be helpful for us as a congregation. The first thing is this. They're just family expectations for us. And again, if you have gone through the connection class, if you've been attending Westside for a year or more and you serve here, listen, I'm speaking to you. If you're a guest here, this is just who we are. You're kind of staying the night at our house and getting to hear a little bit of a family discussion, okay? But some of the family expectations that we laid out are this. The first one is this. All of God's work takes all of God's people. Okay? So, really, I'm going to get real boots on the ground here. If you heard that email and your first response was negative and who's to blame, then you think church is like this. A school bus. Do you know what a school bus is? The school bus is where everybody gets in the back of the bus and then the bus driver is in charge of driving everybody to the destination. And a lot of people think church is like that. Do, 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 I'm getting on the bus today. I'm sitting in the back. I don't really have any major responsibilities or anything like that because the pastor guy and the guy in charge and the guy that has all the answers and all that stuff, he's driving us to our destination. Hey, listen, newsflash. If I'm in charge of driving the bus, dear God, pray for us. Okay? Right? Okay? Um, that's not church. This is a picture of church. Because listen, when one guy stops rowing, the whole boat knows. And it takes each and every person to get to the destination. So, 
if this is the home church that you declare to raise your family and that you were a part of, you are a part of this. We are all a part of this. So very practical. When you come in on Sunday morning, you do not seek who can speak to you, but rather you seek who to say hi to. Um, well, it goes into the second point, which is this. Um, if you're a member at Westside on Sunday mornings, you're the host, not the guest. You're not the guest. Um, very quick example. If you were to go home this afternoon and walk into your house and there was somebody in your house that you didn't know, question, would they get your undivided attention? Yes, they would. Very quickly after you called Popper Bluff to police department, okay? Right? Yes. So why don't you have the same expectation when you walk in here? Oh, I've never seen that person before. And instead of asking 27 people who that is over there, go up and find out who it is, okay? Is that, is that his wife or is that his sister? Right? Go ask him, okay? God forbid the church of Jesus Christ be a nice place where you meet new people, okay? Right? You're not the guest. There's no red carpet for you. All right? Because we're all rowing the boat to be a part of this. And then the third thing is really practical. It's this. We want to properly place people in their primary areas of giftedness. Here's what I mean by that. Do you see the passage? Do you have your Bible in your hand? One of the things they do is this. The apostles say this in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, you need to know this. Jesus looked at these guys and said, hey, you guys, you guys are going to preach. That's what you're going to do. You're going to teach. And by the way, um, you're going to get beaten for that. Oh, and by the way, all of you are going to die. The sign-up sheet's out in the lobby. Okay? And then there's going to be a team. And all of God's work takes all of God's people. This is not saying that the other job is lesser. Because... They can't preach and teach the word if there's chaos and complaints that are happening. That's what struck me so much by the email that I received, is that the sermon begins in the parking lot. It gives a rip how good the music is and how mediocre the preaching is. If somebody does not feel loved when they come in here, they will not hear anything that takes place. And that is everybody's responsibility in the room to feel that way. So here's what we want to do. We want to position you in your area of service. And here's a very practical way that you can do that. If you go to our website, westsidepb.org, there's some tabs in the upper right-hand corner. One of them says spiritual gifts. If you click on that tab, it'll send you to this page. It's got a bunch of information about spiritual gifts. It's got a book that you can buy. But if you click that, it'll take you to the spiritual gifts assessment survey. And you'll take this spiritual gift survey. It's not an end-all, be-all, and, you know, uh, Jesus is going to appear right there in the room and go, here's where I want you to go, okay? But it is a tool to help position and gauge what your area of service is. Example, if you test, like, really low on mercy, we're not sending you to visit people in the hospital, because you're going to stand at the hospital bed and go, well, just get up. Like, 
It's not what the emergency room's for, right? We want people who love people to be loving and serving people. And then there's some of you who are like, oh, not big on the like people thing, but you love spreadsheets and numbers and you're weird and that kind of, okay, right, all right? But listen, all of God's work, all of God's work takes all of God's people. And I'll tell you this, I had our board, I had our staff, and I had our leadership. I gave everybody a copy of that email to keep and to hold and to periodically go back and read so we can say to ourselves that, to the best of our abilities, will never happen again. There are not many things that I bring into the pulpit to address publicly, but a lack of love in the church of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable. And it's all of our responsibility in this. Because, in closing, as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. After they did this, remember the complaint happened. It wasn't defining, it was refining. Because then look, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Do you know what's so significant about that? God wanted to grow the church. He wanted to, but health precedes growth. If God would have done verse 7 before verse 1, it would have crushed the church. Do you know why? Because they weren't ready for it. They weren't structured for it. But then, through humility and the power of the Spirit of God, they humbled themselves and said, oh dear God, we've got to make this right. And they properly placed people in areas of their giftedness. And then the Spirit of God breathed life. And do you know what I feel? In the core of my bones is I believe that God has this in store for Westside. Please listen to me. God is doing something through the leadership of this church to the team leaders of this church. And it's rocky right now. And it's not perfect. But I believe that there is a harvest just on the other side of our obedience. And we're not ready for it now. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord, each of us individually and then corporately. But I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. He says this, We cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon His people once again. When God blows His Spirit of revival, I want West Side's mast and sail to be up to harness and to catch the wind. It's a beautiful vision corporately. It sounds real good on paper. But it will only happen corporately as it is applied individually. So we close the sermon like this for the application. What is the Spirit of God saying to you? Because if it's anything else of, well, this person should have and that, and it's not, God, thank you for bringing this to my attention. God, you know, sometimes on Sundays it's so hectic, I completely forget that it's all about you, Jesus. Francis Chan tells a story. They sung a new song in church one Sunday, and somebody met him out in the lobby. 
And they said, you know, I don't really care for that new song we sung in church today. And Francis Chan said, well, good, because we weren't singing to you. Because we come in this place, we lay our money down, a symbolic for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. We lay our kids down, we lay our marriage down, we lay our job down, we lay our anxieties down, we lay our burdens down, we lay our insecurities down, we lay our health problems down, and we lay it on the altar of grace as Jesus sits on the throne. And we say there are many failures and there are many shortcomings, but God, do it in me. Do it in me first because I lay it all down here. What is the Spirit of God saying to you today? And the second question is this, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it individually? Father God, we come before you today so grateful for your word. God, I'm so grateful for the leadership of this church that we would just be honest and that we would say, whew, man, there's a lot of gaping holes in this thing. And there are some things that are a non-negotiable. And for the very place, for the very place that has been designed to show the world that they're loved, for somebody to come in and feel the opposite. God, I know what it's like to not be seen. But I'm so thankful for a group of people that humbly receive it and go, not on our watch anymore. For it is the goodness and kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And in order for that to happen, we need to look at the truth. And this doesn't define us. This is not the heart of who we are. But it can play a part to be the church that we want to be, that we're striving to be. That through the proclamation and the demonstration of Your Word, that we would be able to say that every single person that walks in through those doors feels the love of Jesus Christ manifested through imperfect, broken people. So God, I pray that Your Spirit moves in us as individuals. I pray against the enemy, his workers and their effects because what a great opportunity to cast negativity and failures and criticism. But in here we operate under the blood and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ where failures don't define you, they refine you. And today we move forward emboldened with your spirit and with your love. May there be a sweet spirit of repentance in this room. Convict those that need convicting. Comfort those that need comforting. And God, may you compel us forward to be a light in a dark world. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand to your feet if you're a baptized?